is uh, Nehemiah chapter 10, uh, which is really a continuation from where Duncan left us last week. Chapters 9 and 10. Chapter 9 is sort of a, a prayer of confession by the people, and chapter 10 is their commitment to action from that. So we, we need to treat these two together. So as I go through this, think confession has happened, the prayer of confession. My reading today is going to be um, the last verse of chapter 9, and then we're going to go to uh, verse 28 of chapter 10 and through to the end of chapter 10. Verse 38 of chapter 9. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the seal, on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, the nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in, the, in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses at the, appointed, at the times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of, of all fruit of every tree, year by year, into the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labour. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the, pe the people of Israel 
the sons of Levi, shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray that through your spirit you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you are revealing to us today. We pray also that you will change our hearts. Amen. Now, just this week gone by, Samsung have sent out an update to its internet app. Uh, it's version 9.2.10.15 for anyone who's playing along at home. I thought that might be the response I would get. <laughs> and as usual, as a, to, ex, to get this app and to use it, I had to agree to the terms and conditions. Have you ever looked into the terms and conditions? Have you ever been preparing a sermon where you thought it might be a good idea to look into? <laughs> Comprehensive is one word that comes to mind. Several others might come to mind as well. But for those of you who like numbers, I did some work for you. If you were to take the terms and conditions, this is just for Samsung, take that document and include it with their privacy policy, and then you put it on a Word document that's in Arial, 11-point font, just with standard margins, comes to 13,500 words, 29 pages. If I was to stand here and read that to you, it would take me two and a quarter hours. So, (laughs) I think I would fall asleep, Brie, to be honest. But who has time to do that? Who has time to really look into these sort of things? Not me. I mean, to be honest, I thought it's Samsung. Hey, I can trust them. They've got my best interests at heart. (laughs) Tick the box, I accept. If this is our way of approaching contracts in our day, how can we really know what we're agreeing to? Sometimes it feels like I'm at the mercy of these companies that really have my best interests at heart, not there to make money or anything like that. The only give and take in our relationship seems to be I give and they take. I give them my money and my information and they take it happily. If you're to open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 10, you could be forgiven for thinking that this commitment that the Israelites are making with God is like one of those contractual relationships, where in turn for their allegiance, God makes them give up all their stuff, give everything they have, to him. They give him their loyalty 
and he takes what little assets they have. It's almost like they're doing nothing more than just changing which debt collector is after them. Instead of, instead of being a slave to one king, they're just being a slave to another. It seems like their search for freedom actually finds them committing to slavery. And if this is how you feel in your relationship with God, if you feel like your search for true freedom has gotten you slavery, then let me take the next half hour to look at what the Bible actually says about our relationship with God. And we're going to do this in Nehemiah chapter 10. We'll start by looking into the commitment that the Israelites are making to God. And as we do so, we'll notice three things about their commitment. We'll notice that it was public, that it was personal, and that it was practical. Firstly, it was a public commitment. Back in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 1, we're told that all the people of Israel were assembled. They're assembled in the court, the courtyard. Their setting is out in the open. They're, they're side by side with one another. They can eyeball each other. This isn't a backroom deal. It's not a commitment made by faceless few. It's all out there for everyone to see. Now in verses 28 and 29 it says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. They're all in this. Now, I think it's only right that this be a public occasion. Their failures and their idolatry certainly was public. The shame that they brought upon God's name and his holy city was visible for everyone to see. And one of the real beautiful things about a public commitment is that it gives a witness, a testimony to God's faithfulness. And it also brings accountability. That's why when we get married, we do it out in the open. We invite people along to witness the agreement we are making. The people need to publicly confess their guilt and commit their allegiance to God. It's not just a public commitment, it's a personal commitment. 
the first 27 verses of chapter 10. It's a list of names. We're used to seeing names in Nehemiah, aren't we? The first 27 verses list out the names of those whose seals are written down on this document. They're, they're representatives of people. And it's probable that they would have used something like a signet ring in the sealing process. They would have known exactly who they were. But liability doesn't just fall to the leaders. It's a commitment that's being made by the whole assembly. The rest of the people join with their nobles and brothers. And as we look at this, I want us to notice the relational language here. In particular, the words separated and walk. The Israelites are separating themselves or divorcing themselves from the surrounding peoples, which means they're separating and divorcing themselves from their gods and from their way of life. They're separating from them to the law of God, to walk in relationship with God through his law. They're committing to walk in relationship with God, to journey life with him. And the Bible has often used language of walking with to describe a close relationship between God and people. God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Enoch walked with God. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, they're all said to have walked in relationship with God. And God's people are expected to do the same. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your good. It's all to walk with God. To walk with God is to be in a close and intimate relationship with him. It's not separated from him. Sort of like when I walk the kids to school. As hopefully a loving dad, I don't say to them, make your own way, I'll meet you there. I stay close to them. Close enough where I can talk to them and they can hear me. I keep an eye on what's going on around us. I like to walk on the, the side of them that's between them and the road, thinking that I'm in the, in the path of danger for them. I hold their hand when I need to. I carry their bags. I play my part, but I also expect them to play theirs, to walk with me and not run off where I can't see them to keep their eyes and ears open to the different dangers and obstacles that are going to come across us. To do as I say, to stop when I say to stop, and to cross when I say to cross. In Nehemiah 10, Israel 
are committing to play their part in the relationship. To stay in close relationship with God. Being aware of what he requires and doing what he says. And to do this, it'll require them to be spiritually separated from those around them. And this separation shows in how they interact with their their world. Look at verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, I think it's important to highlight the emphasis on their spiritual separation from the people. Christians are people who are to be spiritually separated from the world. For Nehemiah, their separation went how they went about their life. Whilst the land, the people in the lands around them were working seven days a week, every year of their life, Israel separated from that. They chose to work six days a week as God had commanded. They didn't intermarry with the people around them. Peter says to his readers to see themselves as foreigners and exiles in this world. As people who are not at home here, who are just merely passing through. Paul warns the Corinthians not to be unequally yoked. And the reason for that can be seen in Solomon's life with his wives. Unbelievers will draw believers away from relationship with God. They might not mean to, but it will happen. Maybe it's a bit like a group assessment piece where the laziness of the worst student affects the grade of the whole group. Being joined to the world affects our allegiance to God spiritually. And while Nehemiah 10 promotes this spiritual separation, I don't see it labouring any elements of physical separation. I think we need to be careful not to take it too far. We follow and serve a saviour who physically came into this world. And from the beginning, God has been working to draw sinful people to himself. We were separated from God. And ever since sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's failure, humanity as a whole has been separated from God. The only way for people to come back into relationship with him is for God to show mercy and to bring them to himself. We see that in the Exodus, and we see it here in their return from exile. But ultimately, finally and completely, we see it in Jesus. In Jesus, God did not remain separated from his creation, but he 
entered into it. He clothed himself in it and he redeemed it. Ephesians 2 picks this up. Talking to his Gentile audience, Paul says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not only was it a public and personal commitment, it was also a practical commitment. And as such, their allegiance would be seen in their ongoing actions. They're obliged to give, and their giving is both regular and sacrificial. It costs them their money their resources, and their time. They commit to offer it, getting the, um, the wood offering. And I was going to say wood doesn't grow on trees, but we, Mark, you're not, not the smartest if you put that one out there. So. But they would have had to have gone and collected wood from the ground all over the place. That would have taken time. It would have taken effort. Even the brat... The fact of bringing their offerings, whether it be to the Levites in the town or to the temple itself, would have taken time. Load up the donkey and cart. We're going to Jerusalem. They're only working six days a week, but they need to take time to do this. It doesn't just cost them a portion of everything they grow. It costs them their first fruits. The first crop. If you were to take that and give that to God, you've got to trust him that the next thing will come. And often the first fruits is the best of the fruit. They're not just giving the first, they're giving their best. The best of their produce, their cattle, and their people. Now, I confess that as the fourth-born son, there were times growing up where I would have been happy if mum and dad had have taken their firstborn, <laughs> given him away as an offering. But actually, the, the, the firstborn was to be redeemed. There's that Christian word, hey? They were to take the firstborn to the temple and redeem their firstborn cattle and sons. They were to pay a price to be able to keep their son. So it wouldn't have worked out too good for me anyway. Mum and Dad would have just brought Dave back. And they would have given money for it. So now we'd have no money for ice cream anyway. So I can't win. But interestingly... While their giving takes a major position in this passage, the focus of their giving seems to be on the house of God. It's mentioned nine times in verses 32 to 39. 
See, most of what they bring goes straight to the temple. And if you're going to raise your eyebrow at any stage in this message, now's the time to do that. Because surely if you want a community to flourish, you lower taxes. You give them more resources to allow their economy to grow. But this is not a tax. It's far from a GST because their giving maintains their relationship with God. And it does, does this by maintaining the work of God's house. See, the primary work of the temple was the worship of God. It was the place where sacrifices were made, the sacrifices that would atone for Israel's sin. And the first fruit offerings and other offerings were there to provide the needs, not just for these sacrifices, but also for the priests and those who worked there, who served there. See, without these provisions, the priests would have to go and work the land to make a living for themselves and their families. And if the priests are out working in the field, who is there to offer the sacrifice? It would mean to stop walking in relationship with God. It would mean they would stop observing his law and stop doing what he had asked of them. But worst of all, it would mean that the wrath of God would remain on them because their sins were not covered. It may seem burdensome to us, But Israel's ability to keep their commitment was actually totally and utterly dependent on God. I mean, think about it. If Israel continued to give the best of what they had, had the best of their animals, the best of their produce, to give tithes, portions of all that they owned, to cancel debts, to work only six days a week, to stop farming the land every seventh year, wouldn't you expect their supplies to run out? I mean, how, how do you think you'd go with taking a year off every seven years? Stop earning every seven years. I mean, most of the young adults would be fine. They're living with their parents, not doing much to earn a living anyway. But I'm sure it wouldn't take long for your coffers to run dry. In no time we'd be on gum trees selling the furniture, selling a kidney, or if it gets really desperate, selling the caravan. <laughs> the fact is, Israel's ability to keep their commitment is totally dependent on the faithfulness and generous provision of their God. He would need to provide them an abundance of animals, an abundance of crops if they're to survive and also to provide the required sacrifices. If Israel were to keep their word, God had to keep his. So what they're actually doing is committing to trust God. They've trusted God to save them. They're also committing to trust God 
to sustain them. And it, might, it might look like they're carrying a heavy burden. But the weight is really on God's shoulders, not theirs. And God can handle it. He has handled it. He handled it for their ancestors. Chapter 9, verse 20 of Nehemiah. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. In fact, in the Exodus, God himself made a public, personal and practical commitment to Israel. It was public as the plagues fell on the Egyptians and not God's people. It was personal as the Lord led his people day and night and spoke to them himself through the cloud. And it was practical as they walked through the parted sea with their backs to the enemy and their face towards freedom. And in Jesus, God has kept his word too. There is nothing more public than death on a cross. It doesn't get more personal than nails through your own hands. And what could be more practical than freedom from slavery and sin. See, like the promises that had been made before it, the Nehemiah 10 covenant is actually destined to fail. And spoiler alert, it does. But it doesn't fail because of this people's lack of of genuine desire to see it succeed. It fails because it's written by human hands. It fails because despite the best of our efforts, it will never be good enough. The selfishness of our sinful DNA will always find a way to neglect God's name in favour of our own. But praise God, that can't happen in the new covenant. The new covenant that God has made for his people. The new agreement with God is written in Jesus' blood, not by human hands. Not only that, it is sealed with his Holy Spirit, guaranteeing its success. Our salvation is only made possible... Through the work of Jesus. We don't achieve it. We can't buy it, earn it, or suffer for it. Like ticking the box at the end of the terms and agreement, we just accept it. Just trust God that he has our best interest at heart. And we started today talking 
about give and take. My prayer is that we've seen afresh today who is really doing the giving and the taking. Whilst we might feel at times that all we seem to do is give while God takes. The truth is, Jesus took our death and gave us his life. He took our slavery and gave us his freedom. He took our shame to give us his name. Jesus has met all of the terms and conditions on our behalf. Have you accepted that? If so, how do we now play our part in this relationship? How do we walk with Jesus now and into the future? Romans uh, uh, chapter 12 puts it this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. See, the challenge for us who claim allegiance to Christ is, is your commitment public? Is it something that you've made known in the world where you live? Or do you keep it hidden? Have you been baptised as a believer? A very public witness? Are you willing to be accountable for your faith? Is your commitment personal? Is it seen in how, uh, is, a, is it a commitment that you have made or are you assuming that someone else will make it for you? Are you relying on your parents or the church to do that commitment? Is Jesus your Lord or are you just leaving that to a representative? Is your commitment practical? Is it seen in how you live, how you give, and what you love? Are we giving regularly? Are we living sacrificially? If not, will you do that today? If you haven't done that, Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10 gives us a really good model about how that should be done. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we see how they own up to their failures. They confess that before the Lord and they trust in his faithfulness. Nehemiah 10, they act on that. They commit their allegiance to God. 
and trust in him alone for their salvation and for sustaining them. Let me pray. Lord, I confess that sometimes I can feel like walking with you is a burden. And for that, I am sorry. You've shown us this morning that you are a good and loving God who has secured and guaranteed our salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you, that we don't achieve this. We don't buy it or earn it. Our salvation is freely offered. All we do is accept it. Lord, we ask that through your spirit, you would help us to walk each day in relationship with you. We pray all this in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.